Lamentations chapter 1. So thankful to be back, as I said earlier with you this morning. We do come today to a new book. I'm guessing it will take us eight weeks or so to make it through. That is, of course, unless there's some word in here that finds me and won't let me go. I want us to take a moment as we begin this morning just to think about uh, all throughout this past week. Um, I've been challenged in my own thinking providentially in several ways. But just to consider the moment that God has us uh, living here in His kindness, this time in human history where out of all places and out of all moments in the history and life of the church, we could be found. And some people would say that this is a a particularly precarious moment and difficult hour and that the church is in trouble. And that's true in some sense, and we're going to get to that today, but Friends, I think that we have a glorious privilege of living in the time uh, that we do. Uh, We live 2,000 years into church history of seeing the truths that have been honed and sharpened through difficulty and through theological rigor. We have the privilege of coming this morning to sing and to encourage one another under words that we haven't written. Uh, There is a day... Can you... All right, I'll calm down a little bit and probably ramp up again, but that, that there is going to be a day that we will stand before the Lord and we will sin no more. What an encouragement that if that's all we got to sing, what a joy uh, that is. We have the joy of, of living on the other side of the cross of Christ and knowing that it is by grace alone through faith alone that we are Saved, And again, we live on the other side of so many theological battles. And those theological battles are not just there so that a bunch of academic men can rail against one another. It is because what this book really says really matters. And we are the recipients of so much of what God has done. Beloved, I believe that in Christ we are the favored of all of the earth. And it's a joy to gather here um, and to consider His truth yet again. We come today to the work that is given by God and to consider what it is that He has done on our behalf To be reminded that He has ransomed us all through the blood of His own Son. And that this God who is full of grace and truth will deal with us at moments in joy, but in other times throughout history, He will deal with His people with more somber truth. Chastising them. Not for their destruction, but for ultimately the deliverance of those who are called according to His purpose. The, the Bible tells us Jesus in His own words says that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. We need to know what that means. Some people would look at the church today in its state and inside of the, the political realm or uh, its rejection by modern society 
and say, oh my, the church must be in danger. But part of what I think we have to understand is the mind of Christ when He is speaking that the gates of hell won't prevail against His church, that it is not the church of all time chronologically. Because we know that the church is suppressed by men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness even from the pulpit. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is that the teleological world or church, that church that He saves once and for all by the work of His blood and His merit alone through grace, that church will endure eternally. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not difficult moments throughout our own personal lives, our own particular local church history, and the history of the church. And so it is with those somber things in mind, and one particular event we'll deal with this morning, that I ask you to rise to your feet as we read the Word of the living God. Beginning in verse 1 of Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sets the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The road to Zion, the roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted that is dragged away. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, but therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. 
For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning thankful for your grace. Thankful that we can look to you as our deliverer, our comforter, the one that will never leave or forsake us. Father, would you give us strength to hear what you would have us from your word this morning. Would you write these truths on all of our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. question here this morning asked is how? That's the way that Lamentations begins. And if you want to circle, if you're a note taker in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle the word how. Because it's so emphatic and so important. This is not the how to or how so or the kind of information gathering. This is the exclamative how of agony. This is the statement, how can this be? As here the author, who I believe is Jeremiah, reflects on the great ruin of Jerusalem. Now for background, we need to understand this is couched, I believe, in the book of Jeremiah, although there's a lot of theological conversation about that and the way that this is arranged, this particular book is arranged in the Jewish Bible, but I do believe that this flows out of Jeremiah and what's going on there. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was in this particular day on a conquest to show his supremacy in the region and his great might in 597. Uh, he captured the 18-year-old king of Israel, Jehoiakim, and he installs another king and renames that king Zedekiah. And the people of Israel, as you can surmise, didn't like this puppet king that had been installed, and so they continually were urging him in 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 congruence with, I think, some uh, pressures outside of the nation, why we find part of the words that we do here, to rebel against Babylon and to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah, the great prophet, repeatedly tells Zedekiah, don't do that. It's unwise. There's no promise for victory in these battles, but Instead, Zedekiah, under the pressure, and we see this all throughout the Bible as, as kings are, are, are brought before us, uh, they fall to political pressure and they're more concerned about their polling numbers and what the nation thinks than the decisions that they have to make. And so, Zedekiah is brought, and the nation of Israel is brought to ruin. Turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 52 and we'll read here. A few verses. Zedekiah, starting at verse 1, was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal. And daughter... Where's Dion? Brother, I am so sorry for the butchery that you're about to go through. Because 
and daughter of Jeremiah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had, had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came, against, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judea that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the kingdom of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem. And he laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the king was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all of the men of war fled and went out from the city by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Abra. But the, the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah. And the narrative goes on. We could read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, we won't. The city has been besieged. There's no food. It's laid waste. The king has tried to escape with all of his army and has been captured. His sons slaughtered and his officials in front of him. He himself dragged off to servitude and to prison for the rest of his days and the question that Jeremiah is ask, is asking is how how can this be this is an arresting image that the narrative continually goes from bad to worse this is this is not just some city this is the city of all cities for the people of God this is the beloved place where people met with Jehovah the God of Israel the Psalms of Ascent talk about this being the place where if you were an Israelite that you longed to go to participate in what chapter 1 calls the festivals and where you would go to rightly worship as was prescribed by the law. This was the center of all diplomacy and military might and commerce and above all things, worship. And imagine if you were one who had not gotten the news about the siege and, and you at long last arrived at the end of your journey to come to this grand city of Jerusalem expecting to find the city full and hustling with activity and flourishing. But what do you find? Verse 1 tells you that you find a city that is deserted, bereaved, enslaved. Verse 2 tells us that the joy of all of the people had gone. How in the world did this happen? How did the, did the king come to a place of being deposed from a position of prominence? How did the daughters find themselves shame? How did this pagan army defy the armies of the living God? How did the priests 
and the temple come to waste. Verse 1 tells us that she was once the princess among all of the nations. And here there is an anthropomorphic poetry is what Jeremiah is writing in in this genre to describe this princess of a city. And now she weeps and there is no one here to comfort her. This is the city of God. This is where all of those who are living under the covenants of God are seeking to flourish under those promises for the glory of God. And she who is under the sovereign reign of God has been laid waste. How in the world can this be? I think we find an indication of how this can be from verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night. With tears on her cheeks, among all of her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. What does that mean? Well, it it points to the reality of the Egyptian influence and all of the other nations that surrounded her influencing Zedekiah to go to war. Edom and Moab and Ammon and Phoenicia. Phoenicia and Tyre and Sidon. And here we find the picture of after Zedekiah does what the prophet of God tells him not to do according to the word of God, Zedekiah says, no, I'm going to take the world's advice instead and do what they think is right. And yet now, where are they? There is no one left to comfort her. Her her allies have become her enemies. Jeremiah chapter 25 really tells us why the city of Jerusalem is found in its current state. Verses 8-11, through Therefore says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all of the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of myrrh, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Not only had none of her lovers come to her or her friends, they had sided with her captors. And I think this teaches us something about suffering. As we lean into lamentations, and it really is a pattern to teach us how to lament in our own lives, regardless of the circumstance, as, as tragedy befalls us, we are called, I believe, by this entire book to turn to the living God and to cry out to Him in our distress. It is what the faithful of God do in the more difficult providences that God brings our way. But these particular realities help us understand the two errors when it comes to digesting suffering in a horizontal sense. One is that we can't say that suffering only comes because of sin. That is the reality of Jerusalem. That is the judgment of God that is laid out here. But we know 
that, that ultimately all human suffering is not a result of personal sin on, uh, as a result of the individual. And I believe that this is part of the reality of what's going on in the nation. There are people who are seeking to honor God and yet they suffer because of the sins of the nation. Which brings us to the other guardrail. One is to believe and to ask, well, is this bad thing happening? The only way that bad things happen in our life is because of some personal sin. And we know because of the New Testament narrative that that is not true. So that's one guardrail. The other one is for people to come along and say, well, God will never bring difficulty into the lives of His people. God doesn't judge His people in this way. A lot of modern theology would say, well, God doesn't ultimately judge the nations according to their, their sin. That's not the impulse or the important reality. But beloved, I think that this passage stands this morning to warn us that God does deal with His church and does chasten His people when they do not obey his word. So our suffering can in fact be, and often is, because of our own sin. We also see in this the importance of the ministry of friends and loved ones uh, when we go through times of suffering. I, I think when we, uh, we see here that the, the imagery that Jeremiah is giving being that there is no lover to comfort Jerusalem. None of her allies are there. There's no friends. He's saying that because one of the common graces that God gives us in our lamentable suffering in our own generation is that He brings alongside of us spouses and church family and friends that when we go through suffering, we can rest in that kind providence. You'll remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Uh, part, of, part of what we see in verse 2 is the reality that we do have friends to comfort us in our suffering. But the greatest thing that I think we have to reflect upon as we look at verse 2 is that the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who ultimately comforts us as we go through difficulty. He ha- is our husband who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. But here, none is left to, to comfort the nation of Israel. And this seems impossible. Again, the question is, how could this happen? The, the word distress at the end of verse 3 has this idea of being in a confined place, of being locked up, and there's nowhere to go. Jeremiah is here picturing the besieged people who, who have nothing in their ability to get out of the current situation. There's nowhere for her to go. How can this be? Again, this is exactly what God had warned of, what what had happened to the nation of of Israel and to Jerusalem at this point in the redemptive narrative is not a, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Deuteronomy chapter 28, hear these words. 
And the Lord will scatter you among all of the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for, for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you, give you there a trembling heart, and failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, If only it were evening. And in the evening you will say, If only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel. And the sights of your eyes shall see, and the Lord will bring you back in, in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female servants, but there will be no buyer. God had warned the nation of Israel against their idolatry and they had spurned His warning. And friends, if we go from all of the difficulty in verses 1-3, through 4-6, through six, don't get any better. Verse 4 begins with these words, the road to Zion mourn. The way leading into the city. The paths that nationally everyone would have thought about as being the parade routes where they went up with great singing and great joy where David had exclaimed, had exalted God so many times. This place where, where there had been so much celebration about the love of God now is a place where no one comes to any of the feasts. Friends, these verses speak of the priests groaning of those who are in religious leadership in the day lamenting the reality of what had happened to Jerusalem, this great city of God. As I was in Louisville for my class this week, um, I was driving through the city. Somebody rather was driving me through the city and there are many old, beautiful church buildings in that place. And as we crossed uh, a particular path of one of these Beautiful churches, gorgeous. Um, I strained to see what the sign over the top of the door said because it, it seemed an odd place for a church sign. And I was really struck with all of the stained glass and everything. And as we got closer, I saw above the door it had some particular name and then below it it said Mexican and barbecue. The entire church turned into a restaurant. And that is an increasing reality in America today. When I was going through college in my undergrad 10 years ago, my professor had pulpit Bibles much like this one but larger that surrounded the entire um, top of his office. And I said, brother, those are great. And he said, no, it's a sad reminder of what's going on in Europe and where I'm from. Most of the churches there are nothing more than restaurants or clinics or they serve some secular purpose. It seems that the churches of God are emptying out in mass. Friends, that's the same lamentable reality in our day. 
And so we have to ask the question, why do we see this falling away? Why do we see the doors of the church being closed? Why do we see restaurant signs uh, above the doors where the faithful once gathered? And the answer to that question is found in these 11 verses. And it is because of this. Because we have not obeyed His Word. Jeremiah chapter 25, I remind you, says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed My words. Jeremiah doesn't say on behalf of the Lord there at His leading, you did not hear My word, you did not sing My word, you did not speak My word. What he says is you didn't obey My word. And friends, I believe that we live in a day and age where so many churches are delighted to sing. They're delighted to hear light truth. They're delighted to have some conversations. But the obedience, the living under the Word of God, as we this takes our mind back to John and the guarding of the Word. No, we're not talking about perfect obedience here. But we, and when I say that, the church at large today has been known by our ability not to insist upon our living under the guarding of the Word of God, but an insistence upon the compromising of the Word of Almighty God. Friends, what happened here is that the church had given itself over to the world, thriving for a time, but then ultimately finding in the day of trouble there was no one left to comfort her. How many churches in our land today have come up with this as the solution to the difficulty that we face of faithlessness. Well, we will just become friends with the world. We will order our worship according to the dictates of the conscience of men. We will make a production out of the praise service. And what happens to the natural eye is success. The pews are filled. The music is glorious and rehearsed perfectly. The offerings go through the roof. The congregation thinks back to these times as the days where we were flourishing. But give it time, beloved, and in almost every case, something will happen. The difficulty will come. And in that day, the church will have no comforter. Because what she has done is she has traded a vibrant relationship with the living God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, for friendship with the world. Oh, friends, might we be careful. Might we ask the Lord to keep His Word ever before our hearts. And might we never take for granted, beloved, the greatest thing we can see in this passage is this. That our Comforter, that our Lover has promised never to leave us or to forsake us. That He continues to pursue His church to build up His church, to chasten His church, and to cherish His church. What a joy it is to know that we are part of that everlasting church. It's not only that she's been laid waste, it's also, look at verse 5, 
Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Not only has the city been laid waste, her enemies now prosper. As God would promise, and the Lord will take you and make you, take you, let me start over, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you, being careful to do them. Verse 6 tells us the sad truth that Zion ultimately had lost her glory. She had had ultimately decided to go the way of all the earth and make friends with the earth, uh, with the world, and in so doing, Jerusalem had lost her glory. The, The leaders weren't encouraged to listen to the prophets. The leaders were encouraged to turn over the city to the world. I I, I mentioned that I spent a a week this past week um, in Louisville. Louisville, as my wife calls it. It's Louisville. Um, the, the, The week was spent just considering church history up to from the time of Christ up to the time of the Reformation. And, and friends, I, I would just tell you that the, the, the consuming feeling I had all through the week is that the church has always struggled with this impulse to become friends with the world. To give ourselves over to the reigning King at the time. And here is what the outcome, historically speaking, uh, is every in every instance when we give ourselves over to the world, we give our glory away because our glory is not in the building, our glory is not in the number gathered, our glory is in our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time that you find the church flourishing, she's not giving the wonderful things she's been given away. She's holding close to them. We, we ultimately see the, the depth of the sin of Israel in the midst of this suffering as we lean into verses 7 through 11. I think this is kind of the crescendo of the how in verse 1. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of her foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall was terrible. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter the congregation, all her people groan as they, stretch, as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. 
We are reminded here, I believe, of the truth that is found in Proverbs. That righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Friends, the progression here in the biblical narrative, not only in Lamentations, but all throughout the Bible, is so clear. Our God is holy. And He, in His loving kindness, gathers a people for His own namesake by His own kindness. And then that people, far too often, turn against Him and run to the world. And so He, in loving kindness, pursues them and punishes them, not for their destruction, but that they might be brought back to Him. It is in sin that we find a God-forsaking people become God-forsaken. When we come to, to verse 1-11 through 11 and we ask the question that Jeremiah is asking, how can this happen? How can God allow His people to go through such suffering? We have to understand that God isn't the one to be rightly judged here. It is a God-forsaking people that are God-forsaken. And God doesn't do this for the destruction of His people, He forsakes for the, the repentance of His people that they would turn and fellowship with Him. Again, let that sear into our hearts this morning. We should lament over, the great number, over a great number of things, but over our own personal sin the foremost. Look at the way that sin is described here in verses 8 and 9. They have become filthy. They sinned grievously. They have seen her shamefully. Verse 9, their uncleanness, the fall is great. Jerusalem has become this object of derision and her glory has been stripped away. Look at what happens. Lamentations verse Seven, chapter 1, verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction. Let this circle star, verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. She had here time to reflect and to remember all of the glorious things God had done for the nation. Psalms tells us to remind every generation of the wonderful salvific works that God has brought to His people. And here, Jerusalem and Jeremiah is remembering everything that God has done to bring His people out of Egypt and to establish them as a small nation, but then to continually give them victory in battle. All of these times of triumph, she's thinking, he's thinking about. And what we learn here is that in our own times of affliction, God often gives us those times of affliction for our reflection. Let me say that again. God often gives us affliction for our reflection. That we, we might stop and think, have we in any way dishonored the Lord? And if we have, oh God, bring us to repentance now that we would not be found as a God-forsaken people. Friends, we live in a peculiar time, I believe. A time when all of the precious things ultimately are in a person, in Jesus Christ. He is our precious One. But friends, we can't know Christ. Have you, have you ever found these people? I love Jesus, 
but I just don't love doctrine. You can't know Jesus outside of doctrine. You can't know who He is without doctrinal assertions. You say, that's not true. Jesus is just my Savior. That's a doctrinal proposition. Jesus is just the one who has ransomed my soul. Be careful using the word ransom if you don't like doctrine because it is a doctrinal word. You see, behind the precious one are all of the precious things that have been given to the church by dear brothers who God has raised up through the power and anointing of His Spirit to deliver the wonderful things of God to the people of God for the flourishing of the Gospel and the good of the nations. And what have we done with these precious things? These teachings of the apostles and the prophets, the doctrinal realities of the Bible. We have given them away. Over generations, we have fallen in love with a modern mindset that says we can have Jesus and we don't have to think about discerning doctrine. Friends, that's just not true. And it's not true by illustration of the world around us. We see the world as it is. We live in our day. Now listen, American history is not perfect, but American history is permeated with the George Whitfields and the Jonathan Wesleys and those men who would stand and proclaim the Gospel and we would see great revivals and people flourishing under the Gospel. We, we, have, we have historical... Listen, when the secular universities like Princeton have documents that prove there were times when the Gospel went forth and the police officers in those particular places were out of a job because in repentance people's lives were changed. We have something to rejoice in. But our nation is much different today. We live in a nation of, and I mean this kindly, sort of, of fools who are given over to not only murdering children in utero, but then in coming up with ideas that would defend that practice. We live in a nation where we encourage teenagers to mutilate their flesh. To mock their God-given gender. We give marriage over, mockingly, to perversion in our high courts. We are given to every conceivable lust. And it isn't even arguable. It's defended. And by many pastors. And we ask ourselves, as we see our nation in ruins morally, and I'm not suggesting that we're moralists, but you have to take account of where America is today and we have to ask the question, how can this be? How did we get here? And we must weep in light of the reality. And friends, there is a subtle lie of Satan that will get you to believe this. We got here because of liberalism alone. Now the liberals have a, a large chunk to take in this downward spiral. But it's not that they got there in their ideas Alone. I believe we've gotten here because we have stopped thinking 
And we've started being a nation of fools who are governed by our affections. We are not thinking people anymore. We are an impassioned people. And passions, listen, I think that our affections are God-given and we should employ them in worshiping the triune God. I believe that's their purpose. Passions are only as good as the mind that guides them. And our minds are only as good as the God that illuminates them. We no longer think. And here's the thing. It doesn't even take that much thinking. Is this a girl or a boy? That's not a hard question. But to get to a point where you can say, well, that's fluid. Friends, that only happens in a context where we are not thinking logically and reasonably in accordance with what God has revealed to us. We are feeling our way along. And in so doing, I don't, I'm not pointing the finger out in the secular world. I'm saying that's a problem in the church. We have spoiled so many precious things. We have taken the doctrines that, that, that the doctors of the faith over the centuries have invested into our lives. And we've thrown them away. We've given over the doctrine of the sufficiency and and inerrancy of Scripture to whatever feels right in the moment. We have given over our anthropology to what secularists will tell us about human sexuality and gender. We have given over the doctrines of Solid ecclesiology, that is what the church, how she should be structured and governed. We have given over those doctrines to what pragmatists will say. That is, we have taken what centuries of church history tells us that God has said through His Word the church should be, and instead we look to guys in skinny jeans and say, what will fill the pew? We have given over the precious doctrines of grace. The doctrines that tell us our salvation is a precious gift given by Almighty God through grace alone, by faith alone. And we've turned that over to smiling crusaders who say that men merely need a mechanical prayer. It is a historical fact that the church flourishes when her doctrine is pure and the lives of the saints are lived in accordance with and not contrary to said doctrine. But beloved, my argument this morning, if you hear nothing else I say, in the heels of Jerusalem ruined is this. This is my contention and my pastoral struggle. And I want you to join me in it so that we don't fall victim to it. It is this reality that we in our generation have filled the church with passion but not with clear doctrine. God help us not to be those people. Now don't hear me wrong in that. We should be an impassioned people. But passion divorced from the truth will lead us to destruction. God, help us to be people who in a day and age where there is so much unclarity, where we turn on the news constantly and have to look at it and go, how in the world did we get here? God, help us to be people who are rooted in the substantial doctrines that we have been given. And that doesn't come 
apart from tears and agony and striving to understand the Word of God clearly. And it doesn't come through our effort alone. It must come by the illuminating power of the Spirit. So what happens to a people when they are given over to their passions and they are given over to the world? Look at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. What happens is when the church of God gives herself over to the world, she is robbed of her glory. And then in verses 9 and 10, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter the congregation. Not only has she been stripped of her glory, she is spoiled of all of her precious riches. And then verse 11, all her people groan as they they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Not only is she stripped of her glory, not only is she spoiled for all of the riches, and I believe that's doctrinally in the church today, but she is left without the bare necessities of life. Beloved, verse 4 tells us the road to Zion mourns. The road into the church is weeping. Why? Because we have thrown away so much for the applause of the world. Friends, we dare not make friends with the world because on the day of judgment, if we live our lives seeking to please the world, we will have no one to comfort us. Our friends and the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, will not stand with us. This is the somber warning, the somber truth today, the lamentable reality That because the Lord can and did destroy Jerusalem without being unfaithful to even one of His promises in any sense, He can and does remove in our own generation the lampstands from the churches as Revelation chapter 2, verse 6 tells us. If we refuse to hear the words of the prophets and the apostles, if we demand of the pulpit something cute and trite and do not desire to be brought to repentance under the Word of God according to the Spirit of God, God will depart from us. Denominations and congregations dissolve, friends, not because the world overcomes them, but because they give themselves over to the world. And He will not let the gates, friends, of hell prevail against His beloved church. I promise you that. But I also promise you that He is a faithful bridegroom who when His wife, His bride, whores herself out to the world, He will not fellowship with her. God help us. Not to be a people given over to the world. Not living lives compromised. God, help us not to be men and women who love truth and who speak of solid erudite doctrine, but live our lives in foolishness and sin. 
May we lament the state of our own lives first and the church that is compromised in our day. And may we beg God for mercy. As I was concluding my study on this section of Lamentations, one reality it really struck home to me, and that is verse 11. Look there one more time with me. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Here are a people who, because they had been led so poorly and because they had lived so licentiously, had been brought to ruin. And they thought that the best they could do was sell all of their wares and all of their treasures to just get a loaf of bread. When they're the nation whose God provided them manna in the desert, they didn't need to sell anything. They needed to turn back to the living God. They needed to cry out for His grace and His mercy, knowing that He is the good husband and the kind friend who never leaves us. And what a joy it was to remember Christ's words in John chapter 6. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him... God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it was written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given to me, but raise it on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, we must be careful in our own generation not to gorge on the theological hogwash of our own day 
but to feast upon Christ and Christ alone through the doctrines that have been spoken through His church throughout all of the centuries. And in so doing, we will not shrink back on the day of our salvation, but will rejoice in His coming. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning with hearts lamenting the reality that far too often in discerning good doctrine from false doctrine, we don't put Your glory before all things, but rather our comfort and what we think. God, would You do a work in this place by Your Spirit and through Your Word that we don't desire comfort, but that we desire theological fidelity and that we would live according to that theological fidelity and not for our own ambitious or prideful ends, but for Your glory, that Your name would be exalted and that in our community others would fall down on their face knowing that You are at work amongst us. Father, might we rejoice in the fact that we know as true converted Christians we never have to worry about a day where you would destroy us utterly, but that through the working of the Spirit and the power of the cross we have been delivered from Satan into your kingdom such that we may not be destroyed and we will never lose our salvation. We rejoice in that reality today. And if there's one here that has never repented of sin and turned to you, Father, would you draw them to yourself that they may repent? Might you bring them to yourself that they would behold your glory and become converted and live lives of repentance as fruit of that reality? Father, this morning we lift before you Valerie Johnson as she's lost her sister, and we ask that you would give her comfort. Father, there is so much lamenting uh, the death of a loved one. We face the dark, difficult reality of the consequence of Adam's sin. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen this precious lady and those who are around her. We love her and we're thankful for her, and so we ask that you comfort her. Father, for the Richardsons who aren't able to be here with us this morning, uh, we are so thankful for the reports that uh, are good and favorable about their weathering through their virus. And we just ask, Father, that you would continue to strengthen them in the days ahead and that they would be restored to full health and that we would be able to hug them soon here in this place. Father, we lift before you Linda Smith this morning and ask that um, you would just keep your hand upon her as uh, she has some doctor's appointments tomorrow. I just pray, Father, for my sister. I'm so thankful for her and her encouragement and love and care throughout the years here. And I just ask that you would give mercy in that situation. Father, I pray for our missionary Jaron Rogers this morning and his family that are in Nicaragua. I ask, God, that you would keep your hand upon their ministry, that they would be people given to the substantial doctrines of your word. And Father, that you would use them there to reveal wonderful things to the people in Nicaragua and that their lives would be transformed for your glory. Father, this morning, more than anything, we come desiring that we would grow in personal holiness, that we would put aside the foolishness of our sin, and that we would walk in fellowship with you. Father, would you be glorified to mold us into the image of Christ even yet this week. In Christ's name.